Hey everyone, welcome back to Game in Hand. This is episode 11, it is December 7th at the time of recording, and this is the podcast where an aging gamer rambles on about how good remakes are of games that came out nearly three decades ago. Yes, the Super Mario RPG remake released mid-month in November, and in no short order I 99% of the game in exactly four sessions. I felt fairly content from start to finish, making sure that I hit every hidden block I could remember, did every side area, and completed basically anything that doesn't require a pointless amount of time uh, or guessing chaos thanks to wireless input. I am really grateful how faithful it was to the original game uh, in literally all aspects, and then the developers just put icing on the cake for some quality of life fixes and, you know, some extra spoilery content. I am going to break tradition on this podcast by talking about literally this everything this game has to offer. I hope some of you aren't too turned off if this is your first crack at the game. It's usually I tend to edge around all the spoilers and maybe the bigger points, but as you'll find out as we go through, it's kind of a short game, almost shorter than I remember. But before we just kind of talk about how short the game was, especially seeing how I beat it in four sessions, let's get something important out of the way, and that's difficulty, which I think ties into this. If you've ever played Super Mario RPG as, as a kid or casually through emulation or realistically I feel like if you've held a controller two or three times in your life you are already overqualified and prepared for breezy difficulty. Monsters are kind of just shadows of their normal selves and bosses are just kind of like cute inconveniences. They load you up with extra inventory slots and make some scale tipping mechanics just kind of like a band-aid fix. And so after maybe about 20 minutes of playing on Breezy, I just went straight back into normal. Now the game mentions that normal is the original experience that they want you to have from kind of the typical NES experience. But even then, with all the changes that they made to the game, I found it way too easy. Early on, I was way more afraid of encountering random golden mobs than I was worrying about preparing for boss fights. Partly due to the fact that timed hits in this game just kind of made a mockery of the game, and then you add everything else that kind of works in your favor, like uh, timed chain bonuses, uh, team-up attacks, changes to inventory. I don't think they did anything to stat scaling, but somehow it just felt better, and they straight up gave you access to more than 99 coins uh, in your wallet, uh, access to ample frog coins thanks to analog stick controls. And those golden mobs that you can encounter just always giving you a frog coin for winning. And like I mentioned before, stacks of items rather than just the hard two columns of stat. I don't even remember. I think there's maybe like 40 or something. Whatever. Having full stacks of whatever you wanted for inventory just kind of further trivialized everything. If we're talking difficulty, the hardest kind of non-final, non-extra content boss to me was... Mac, or I guess he's called Clay Morton in this game thanks to a translation team who could be contacted, and who knows, maybe there was Google Translate involved this time. Literally every other boss, with I think the exception of like Smithy, uh, 
And I guess there's the other side of that where there's just like one hit mechanic bosses like the sword on top of the castle. Everything is just a attack fodder, with most dying in three to four regular hits. But everything is kind of exactly how you remember it. You remember it. Uh, you go through all the towns as normal. Sometimes there's a little bit of extra special dialogue. Sometimes it just kind of sticks to as close to the original SNES experience as possible. Every once in a while, they throw in some like quality life improvements. For example, they give you the signal ring uh, in the Mushroom Kingdom, which is huge for anyone who actually wants to do an 100% completion and find every secret chest. The indicators for timed attacks was also pretty big. It was interesting to see what the, I'm going to call it cleave timing was for every single attack. But like I said, that kind of tied in once I figured out how to do the most damaging attacks, making sure I was doing cleaves. It was the first moment where I realized that the game was a lot easier than what I remember. Especially, like it didn't fully click until I was fighting Knife Guy and Great Guy. Each one died within two to three regular attacks. And we're talking like Bowser with his Chain Chomp and Mario with, I guess, whatever I was using on him at the time. There'd be fights like the Axum Rangers that would die to cleave. And while I agree that it was definitely right for them to take some of the mystery and guessing out of the equation for attacks that you can block and attacks you can't block, I think you wouldn't have had a good time uh, in the after boss battles uh, if you didn't know what you were supposed what you were supposedly properly if you didn't know what you were supposed to properly perfect block. They also did the favor of implementing like, okay, well, it's like you can stop mashing A now, or you, go, you can let go of A, and you got it. Or, you know, it's just like, okay, the bar's filled, please stop rotating your stick and creating more drift. Not to mention something that kind of just trivialized the game, being able to switch characters mid-battle. You know, the, oops, you decided to play with Bowser and Geno in your party, but you still decided that you want everyone to have work pants while you're in Nimbus land and everybody died, well don't worry about that. Peach and Mallow can just jump right back in and fix it in with that rainbow team-up attack. So don't worry, everyone will be revived. There's nothing that you have to worry about. Also part of the quality of life improvements were just like the mini-games, like for example, the Yoshi, guess where the Yoshi is, was no longer just like a random guess. You could actually follow it to where the egg was going to stop. Watching, I think it's Knife Guy, watching him juggle. Uh, I didn't get a single guess wrong, and I was able to get, uh, whatever, the gold card for Great Guy's Casino, like, instantly. They did change out some of the games. Like, I think there was either a matching or a poker game, which basically just turned into a, a, a memory game. Which, yeah, I guess it's right for them to take gambling properly out of the game, uh, but still it felt kind of weird. And really, the amount of coins and frog coins that they give you in the game, aside from maybe an opportunity to try and get more rock candies, the casino doesn't really need to exist anymore. Those were some of the improvements. Uh, I can also talk about some of the improvements, well, maybe the changes, which kind of become a change of pace, or maybe just like, look a little out of place. The first one I'm going to talk about is the obvious ones. Uh, it, and if you've seen it, uh, I believe it's Peach, Mario, and Mallow. Uh, they don't spin around and give the peace sign anymore, which I didn't realize the peace sign was some sort of, like, invocation of 
war or, you know, insult. But I mean, like, to me, it looked super out of place when to show Mario's satisfaction, he takes off his hat and shows us his hat hair. There's other kind of, like, changes like that. Like, for example, uh, Valentina in combat has the uh, support she finally needs, if you know what I mean. And we're not talking about her dumb bird because I had made sure that Bowser was fighting Dodo. And of course, Bowser killed Dodo in two hits to rejoin the fight. But I don't know, I guess that's not probably too out of place. Uh, the minigames got revamped for more of like a proper... What's the right way to put this? Updated for current-gen consoles? Like, Midas River, of course, seemed to have gotten a lot harder to me. Not for the part where you're falling down the waterfall, uh, but the barrel jump. To me, it was mostly due to, like, the delay of cheap cheeps that come out. It seems to have, like, changed the pace or the frequency. Uh, I also felt... It was a lot harder and maybe a lot more frequent to see uh, cheap cheeps from behind hitting me. I think it was the first time where I was getting hit three to four times in every run. The next minigame that changed a lot was uh, Booster's Hill. It kind of combined the difficulty of the original system plus maybe to me what feels like the only downside to having full degree of motion in being able to move around. They did you the favor and at least changed the color of the faster moving barrels. But the first half I was able to fully comprehend and, you know, grab every item from Peach, hit every male and female beetle that I could see. But in the second half, man, that was just like pure chaos. And I think I maybe only got to get one or two flowers from Peach in the second half. Maybe it's just me getting old. I kind of touched on this before in the other side where it's like, well... It's definitely a positive to see whatever the perfect timing for attacks are when you get to experience cleave. The one thing that I'll say about timed attacks though is kind of the timing is weird per weapon and per character and sometimes it's a little bit brutal. Like I mean, if I had to order all the characters from easiest to hardest in terms of making sure you get their cleave like perfect timing, it would go Mario the easiest, then Mallow, then Peach, then Bowser, and then Gino. And sure, maybe this is just going to be super subjective, and maybe everyone else had like a super easy time. But for example, when Bowser had the Hurley gloves for me, uh, I don't think I hit a cleaving hit once. And maybe maybe I did hit it once, but I'm pretty sure it was by accident, not because I learned the timing. Even when you get the little like, okay, yeah, press the button now, but I never got a cleave. But for example, like, Bowser's spike ball was easy, and so was, like, uh, the chain chomp, and later on the gold chain chomp. Princess Peach maybe should be higher, but I don't know whether it's just the fact that her attacks maybe aren't as animated as everybody else. Like, it feels like she was very restrictive in her movements, and so, like, you didn't have to have a big variable lead-up that might make you not get perfect timing. Mallow was kind of the same, but somehow I always felt like Mallow was just a little bit easier than Peach with froggy sticks and cymbals and punches. And it's not like Mario was without fault. I think it was like the first set of punch gloves I got uh, was a little bit of an adjustment just because it seemed like the animation was too quick to start or something. But then like you get like Gino, who I put at the bottom of the list because every gun feels like it's a brand new timing. I think there was only one that I kind of intrinsically could figure out, and it was like the double, yeah, it was some sort of like two-handed 
uh, shooting bullets attack. If I could remember what the weapon was, I would, but I don't think it matters that much. But for example, a uh, lazy shell that you get from Mario, by the time you get that and you have to use it for the rest of the game, like you could get that timing with your eyes closed. And I'm going to continue kind of harping about uh, perfect attacks and perfect timing because that's probably going to be a player's largest obstacle uh, in beating the game and in spoilers, and I guess in spoiler, all of the post-clear content. Honestly, it's probably to be put in like the good quality of life section because honestly it was the biggest challenge for me in the game uh, and it was probably also the most satisfying. Uh, you get seven bosses at the end of the game. Uh, they make you go up onto Star Hill where you see new stars that have little, you know, rematch uh, phrases. Uh, four of the seven bosses were kind of a cakewalk. I guess I can just kind of like go through them in order. Uh, the, you, the first boss they make you fight again is uh, Bellum, who becomes a polymorph spammer. Once you know this, you can be like, okay, well, all I have to do is go in with some true form pins and like you'll do this easily. Me being kind of like the, oh yeah, this game's a joke kind of attitude going in. Uh, only Peach had true form. Uh, so there was a lot of group hugs and a lot of like single attack turns that made that fight take way longer than it had to. And then you go back and you fight uh, Punchinello again in the, whatever, the mole mines. Uh, it's really funny because the bombs will instantly kill anyone who doesn't do a block. It doesn't have to be a perfect block, but a non-perfect block makes you take a, quite a bit of damage. And then part of the fight mechanic as you get further in, uh, it forces you to hit the bombs and spin them around so that, you know, regular attacks are going to do like two damage, but a bomb will do like, I think it was something like 70. All in all, it wasn't too hard of a fight, uh, but it was definitely an interesting mechanic. The third boss that you make, that they make you fight again, which they make you fight properly as a boss that he's supposed to be, is Booster. And oh man, I'm surprised more people aren't talking about this. Not only is it like the most hilarious fight, to me it was just like one of the funniest, memeiest pieces of hilarious content that I could only describe in these words until you experience it in real life. It was the first of the three that I couldn't face roll and that you actually needed to learn the mechanics. Uh, you need to have a character who's faster than Booster can prepare his train, uh, especially when the uh, Sniffets make him work faster. Uh, you can either boost a character up in speed, uh, or for me, it was just having Gino in the party. Uh, when he spins around to go back to work, uh, you use Gino to break his converse, uh, concentration with a hit. And then you can just slowly whittle him down and make sure that you have a healer in the group. You can always go the alternative route, uh, which is to use the Gino Whirl and get the 9999 crits on in the Sniffets. Um, but if you don't, <laughs> you, you get to see Booster turn around and say, Okay, it's ready! And then all you hear is, Doot, doot! As <laughs> he runs his train into your entire party and wipes you out. Like, seriously, go watch a video of it once you've done this podcast. It is literally the most meme thing ever. And I don't think I've laughed so hard and wanted to see my own demise so often than this boss fight. Because after this fight, you go and fight the cake again. Uh, the cake, a pun aside, was a complete cakewalk. And all you need to do is just keep the cake from getting too many candles. Uh, otherwise, it just spams spells at your party. It wasn't that hard, though. 
the boss after that was, I believe, Jinx, uh, which he, he I put him like halfway in between. I feel he was pretty hard because all of his attacks are basically like mortal blows. Uh, so if you can give yourself mortal blow protection and just make sure that you're getting at least some sort of timing in, uh, you can make it through pretty easily. Like I beat it on my first run and all I had was Peach with like a lazy shell and the safety badge. After that, uh, you fight Johnny, or maybe you can go and fight Johnny before. I actually don't think you had to do them in order, but I feel like as you get further along in the order that they want you to fight them, like you go to Frogacus and he'll tell you who the next fight is supposed to be. Uh, Johnny makes you 1v1 him with, with no items and only Mario, uh, and the only thing that you get from the party is basically your chain boost. I put him maybe closer to the easy category because I walked into him not properly set up uh, and I was just doing pretty well blocking his skewers which did the most damage uh, and I almost killed him in just normal play gear. But literally all it took was for me to equip the lazy shell armor and making sure that I got at least partial blocks uh, to trivialize the fight. By the way, all these kind of give you either uh, your party's final weapons which are pretty cool like for example Mallow finally gets a weapon that gives him magic attack or like if you don't get a weapon you get kind of like a disappointing accessory that just allows you to revive a character once per fight which uh was kind of sad I'm really surprised that they left Mario out from like a super weapon but I guess the lazy shell counts as that but then when you beat Johnny he just gives you an extra shiny stone uh and having beaten all of those six bosses uh, makes Kullix's door rear, uh, reappear for, surprise, surprise, a fully 3D modeled uh, Final Fantasy Kullix. He was uh, kind of uglier in 3D. I don't know what to say. Uh, Kullix 2.0 is definitely the hardest of them. Uh, on a five-turn rotation, uh, he nukes your party and you have to have full health. Uh, but you can most definitely just like turtle up and make sure that you top up your characters before the zero count and go in with enough party heal items that you can wait out the jewels uh, to run out of FP. Each one of the jewels that you kill uh, gives a boost to Kullix, but really by the time I knocked out all the jewels, he's pretty easy and straightforward and by that point it's done. The reward is kind of a slap in the face, you basically get a shard of participation uh, to show that you beat the hardest content in the game, uh, and Frogicus calls you Sage Mario. Honestly those are the redemption bosses for all of the stupid easy bosses that you make you fight in regular story mode. Uh, I was kind of thinking that if I had to play it again, maybe I'd just do a Mario only playthrough and see how far I get. Because uh, the last thing I'm going to talk about, surprisingly enough, isn't the performance on the Switch. Because aside from what I would call maybe a couple uncontrolled cutscenes uh, that had like frame dips, the game runs great. The thing that I want to complain about the most is the price, and I mean, look, Nintendo, I get it. You have two mega conglomerates who are both taking part in a remaster, one of the most touted games of all time. Both of these companies want to have a hand in the cookie jar when this goes through, but releasing a game that a casual person can and should expect to 100%, with maybe the exception of getting 100 jumps for the super suit, makes me kind of wonder how they expect someone to pay $60 US for a 15-hour game. 
And I mean, you can stretch out that playtime by, who knows, inexperience, uh, love for just jumping randomly in the forest maze, trying to find hidden chests. But I mean, in my case, like I said, four sessions, I 99% of the game. And I clarify that last 1% as I didn't use the sheep item, whatever, 45 times to get the sheep attack. And I could never get 100 jumps to get the super suit. But I cleared li literally everything else in this game. Uh, I have just under 13 hours of gameplay in this game. All my characters are max level. I have all the flower tabs plus more, max FP. There's nothing left for me to do except to go back and beat uh, Kulix 2.0 again because you can have rematches with him to get your round count down. Like I beat him with 20 turns and honestly, I don't really want to go back and do it again. And from like the nostalgic point and the fact that I have a physical copy of this game, who knows, maybe I'll back it up. It'll always be there when I want to do another playthrough, but it's on the Switch. Better yet, it's at the tail end of what I would call the Switch's life. So, I mean, backing it up might be the better idea. It, we might have to fall back on uh, modders rather than Nintendo to give us more content, give us a more well-balanced game. The game sold fairly well from what I can see, uh, but I can definitely say that there were some reports where it just fell off a bit quicker than I thought it would. In the UK alone, the second week, I, I think it went from like 5th place to like 16th place or something. And we're talking, and you're like, well, what other games could have come out at the end of the month? No, it's like it was losing to game sales of like Hogwarts Legacy at 50% off. I don't even know if that's the Switch title, but like, that's depressing. And I get it, like, look, British citizens, yes, I know you love the Harry Potter universe because it's about British boarding school, which I guess everyone can relate to. And so you want to exist both in the world of the Harry Potter universe and also in the universe where people try to figure out why J.K. Rowling is Twitter insane. Part of me thinks that maybe they had it coming not JK Rowling and the LGBT community, I'm talking about like the significant drop that if you know anything about Super Mario RPG in the UK, or I guess Europe in general, uh, they didn't do a PAL version on Super Nintendo because, I don't know, some genius decided they wouldn't program the game to run at 50 FPS to support, I don't know what it is, some sort of weak electrical grid for the time. So basically everyone had to wait for the Wii Virtual Console version. So maybe it just doesn't hit as hard as anything else. But honestly, Super Mario RPG Remake took exactly as long as it took for me to beat Super Mario Wonder uh, and get all badges, all clears, you know, top of the polls and everything. I 100% love it because to me it is 100% nostalgia. I, I'm literally supporting this in the grand hope that they make enough money off this game to continue going through and making more Super Mario RPG style games. It's the one kind of sad point because I know they kind of pivoted Mario RPGs onto like the lesser consoles like the Game Boy Advance, the Game Boy, Game Boy SP, the 3DS. But I mean, if you think about it, the new Super Mario Brothers series has basically just had the exact same formula for so many years. Why can't we just get that with Super Mario RPG? And I feel like I could yell this until I'm like blue in the face. 
I just want to show my support for this game because I don't think Super Mario RPG 2 is ever going to be a reality. I know they're talking about doing a remaster of The Thousand Year Door, and you know they're saving that for like two months before the Switch 2 comes out and nobody needs to care about the Switch anymore, but it's depressing. The only upside to this is I had a chance to do other things and play other games. I kind of wanted to talk about this when I was talking about PAL games, um, because as much as I joke around and say like, haha, you guys don't have proper electricity, I don't know, back in the day, I have a better appreciation for PAL games uh, when I try to play games on like retro handhelds. So for those of you who might be out of the loop, there's a lot of these like little tiny retro Chinese built handhelds that are just like amazing for emulation. Like the first one that I bought was, uh, aside from like putting games on PSP and PlayStation Vita and 3DS, my first legitimate custom handheld was uh, Miu Mini Plus, which is great for emulation and like 99% of the PlayStation 1 library runs pretty well. Although sometimes it feels like it's from uh, a fairly generous frame skip. Back when I had to get it, you had to wake up at like 2 o'clock in the morning when everyone in Hong Kong was awake uh, and when Miu was ready to put it up for sale and everyone basically had 500 units to try and buy or some garbage. Originally, I bought it for like $91 Canadian plus import GST, which I think, you know, it probably rounds it up to about 100 bucks. But being it's a Chinese retro handheld, mine has like the wobbly front screen uh, and my function button just like randomly activates itself while I play. That's probably like the biggest negative thing I have to say because once I got Onion OS on it uh, and you get an appreciation for like the build quality and the, the quality of the buttons and like the dome switches, it was really enjoyable and it's just I always wanted something that I could just throw uh, in my bag. Uh, you know, if you're waiting for an appointment, you're waiting to pick up your kid, whatever. It was easy for me just to like pull it out and just get some time in where you could quickly jump into a game uh, and then shut it off and it saves your state. Or you can hit the quick access button and you can switch between, I think like, I think it's a history of like 10 games. It really changed my whole mind kind of like from a purist emulation standpoint. Cause like I used to play Super Nintendo games back in the day on like ZNES. The thought that I could scrape all the art, have side bezels, being able to do so much more and have everything working through something like RetroArch was just like a foreign concept. But recently in uh, an AliExpress Black Friday sale, uh, I managed to pick up uh, an R, uh, Retroid Pocket 2 Plus. Oh, sorry. I managed to pick up a Retroid Pocket 2 S. It came out to something crazy, like $110. Uh, it has the, I think it's called the Unisoc T610 chip. And it allows you to play like 50% of like GameCube games, a lot of Dreamcast games, a select list of like PlayStation 2 games, you know, PAL titles. It's incredibly good for someone who wants to have slightly newer technology. And I can't wait until we can have not like a Steam Deck, but at least like one or two times PlayStation 2 experience in these tiny handhelds. Because despite its flaws, the, the Retroid Pocket 2S, uh, it has like a little tiny 3-inch 480p screen. It's not going to win any awards, but it really strikes a positive balance between uh, 
what is really a budget handheld uh, and all those other devices that want you to spend like $170 or more to do slightly better. Because it really takes me back uh, to when I had my Steam Deck and kind of gives me a, a stronger appreciation for these game-oriented operating systems. I know they're probably all just based off like Linux or something. Uh, the Retroid Pocket 2S uh, is based on Android, which Android is also fairly lightweight as long as you don't have like Google Play services running in the background all the time. But it's something you just learn to appreciate, which is probably why people love consoles so much. It's just something that Windows 11 can't be. And even if we see like a big revelation with Windows 12, you realize that they're not going to live in two worlds. It's always going to be the Windows who wants to sell volume licenses, have a proper store to have Xbox Game Pass proper at whatever, sell you on OneDrive and Office 365 experiences, subscriptions. But let's move on to uh, gaming news. The, the good news is, is I had some time to pick up and play other titles thanks to Super Mario RPG being so short. Uh, I got about five hours into Like a Dragon Gaiden, uh, the man whose name is literally spoiled five minutes into the game, which is interesting why they poke fun at this title. But I guess to me, despite kind of like the familiar map gameplay, Like a Dragon Gaiden was just kind of too repetitive for me to keep going. Like I said, I put in about five hours. I, I did the first two big missions. Seeing the game is $50 as someone who gets it on Game Pass does feel kind of a little bit steep, in my opinion, especially for what was originally described as standalone DLC, which I totally get. But yeah, I don't think it lessens my expectations for uh, Like a Dragon Infinite Wealth. I feel it was just like a missed opportunity. Since we're talking about dabbling in games on Game Pass, I ended up playing Persona 5 Tactica. It is surprisingly a full $60 US title, uh, and just it wants you to pretend like it exists in an alternate dimension at the same coffee house, but spoiler, tries to carry on all the same characters except for a couple new ones. Um, and I think they want you to know that this game is not canon because, I don't know, alternate universe. It does have some pretty fun casual qualities that I feel like I can just pop into whenever I need 20 minutes to kill a mission or two. Uh, the skill trees and the progression of like unique skills kind of is interesting. Uh, it's interesting that they still kind of stick within their Persona-verse. The only upgrades that I could see so far are just like upgrading your individual weapons, which are kind of cool with its varying substats. Uh, but sadly, like I said, I think my feelings on this are mixed. It just doesn't have that same shine Persona 5 had. The one redeeming quality I'll say for sure is it is definitely a game that'll run on the Steam Deck, so Steam Deck users will probably rejoice and still love this game, even though it feels like it maybe should have belonged on a cell phone or, I guess, the Switch. Uh, they've already advertised microtransactions for cosmetics, uh, and to me that's kind of like the nail in the coffin. I'll probably play this a little more casually, uh, but I just kind of have no invested interest in seeing this start to finish. So let's talk about indie games, and I have three of them in particular, which I feel like are going to be mentioned at least once in Games of All Time for 2023. I didn't actually know about Cocoon until it was mentioned in some Game Awards, which I think 
is probably the purpose of the Game Awards. It's made by the same developers who did Inside, and you kind of fall in love with like the cleverness of it. The whole construct of the situation, kind of like the inception checkpoints, uh, the puzzles, the bosses. When you start going through, like the game literally makes no sense and nothing is explained to you. So you realize that you're just kind of like eyes wide open and along for the ride. But it's very cute and it's very clever. And I think that level of coyness is what has drawn so many people to enjoy this as, you know, their indie game of the year contender. The other two games I've played uh, are both, I believe, early access titles. Uh, the first one is for all you uh, Canadians, or I guess Canucks, and I guess Scandinavian countries who like sports ball. It's called Tape to Tape, uh, and it's effectively the offspring of like modernized NHL 94 uh, and a magical roguelike. You pick your best player, and you pick your best special sidekick, uh, and then you get like a handful of goons with various stat distributions. Each one have their own e unique stats, uh, special skills like throwing your stick like a tomahawk to knock people over at range, uh, or you like you can shoot through blocking players. It's not going to be for everyone, uh, and definitely when I started playing it had a little bit of a learning curve, similar to probably most hockey games that you pick up for the first time. But I'm, s I'm having a lot of fun with it because it's so damn clever and fun. Uh, although, to me, playing the story mode is not incredibly deep, uh, I am liking the progression of, like, leveling up stats for your main character. And I think you could get a lot of arcade fun out of this game if you had someone uh, you could play co-op with, or a bunch of friends just to play in exhibition mode. The last game on this list is a, uh, a co-op request from a buddy of mine. It hasn't been out for too long, but it's had enough revisions that it looks like it's pretty solid. I have about 12 hours into it, uh, and the game's called Inkbound. It takes aspects of like, I want to say Hades, but gives you kind of like an, a turn-based arena uh, to make choices on whether or not you attack, whether or not you buff, and allows you to pick various artifacts that allow you to continue through the game as you see fit. I guess they're not called artifacts, they're called vestiges, but it's definitely interesting as they give you so many multi-aspects, which are, I guess are the classes of this game, and they want you to progress and get through quests, albeit sometimes they're just a little bit ridiculous as you get further in. You play on the hardest mode, uh, there are daily modes that set you on a path with a character and a very specific set of debuffs, but there's always the challenge mode which kind of it wants you to push through all the difficulties, I think, until you get to, I think it's 100. The one nice thing about it is there's nothing gated behind microtransactions and purchases, as far as I can see. It's just quests to un unlock the new aspects uh, and continue almost in a battle pass fashion. It's fun, and we both enjoy playing it co-op. Uh, it is a little bit rough around the edges. There are some things that I wish it really had, like proper controller support. At the moment, it thinks controller support is just allowing people to have left stick movement uh, and physically remapping your keys every time you want to play either on a controller or on a keyboard. So for any of you people who have uh, an ROG ally or, you know, like a, a Win 4, it does make it just a little bit harder 
to switch ad hoc between the systems, but I guess it's not too bad since you can just re reset keyboard to default. But it's the fact that you can't really get around using the mouse that makes it kind of suck, almost as if you probably have to set it up in like desktop control mode instead of game mode. But it's fun, uh, it has my stamp of approval, I have no intention on not playing the game, uh, and I'm definitely going to unlock all of the aspects. Most recently it has quite overwhelmingly positive review scores, although I don't know whether it's just finally crept in to the range of number of reviews that it can have overwhelmingly positive. It's definitely a game that I'd love to get four players in for some co-op and face roll, so I would definitely say keep this on your radar for this holiday. And funny enough, that's going to cover off this entire episode. Uh, I, I'm going to laugh and say that I keep saying that I'm really close to the end of Baldur's Gate, I didn't realize how long the third act of Baldur's Gate is, so I don't know, I think I'm pretty hesitant to say if I'll be done by Christmas, but I'm pretty sure there's going to be a point where I just like go ham on it, because there's only so much that could possibly be left to do in the game. I hinted at it before, but since we're already so deep into December at the time of recording, uh, the game awards are already starting up, uh, and I mean like... I think I'm probably going to have a next episode just kind of talking about Game Awards and my games of 2023. I always feel like the Game Awards starting up at the end of November, beginning of December is such a cop-out, and it pisses me off. Because, I'll, I mean, okay, we'll talk about it. it. A lot of them are already listing off their titles and, you know, spewing out promo content. Uh, a, a bit of it, some of it is a bit disappointing, some of it is about inclusion and not from like an LGBT standpoint. I'm talking about like who was the the best gamer team of 2023 and the old man of me and says shut up nobody cares as I shake my cane at the kids skateboarding on the sidewalk. Oh my god. I am kind of happy that I'm already seeing like the notable trend that maybe warrants why they can just stop at November. Baldur's Gate 3 is just, like, cleaning up. Uh, for example, the jo Golden Joystick Awards, uh, GameSpot, Game of the Year, you know, always going to Baldur's Gate 3. Uh, they have uh, Asterion's voice actor getting awards. It was funny in the Joystick Awards, Starfield got some sort of, like, uh, industry participation award for most unpolished turd that has some redeeming qualities because of like the scope of the game or like cyberpunk being voted as whatever the best dlc or the voted into the most popular perpetual game as it sits alongside like fortnite apex legends and genshin impact which come on now you're never gonna win a popularity contest versus genshin impact even Honkai Star Rail has more redeeming qualities and long-lasting appeal than Cyberpunk. But it's definitely a topic in and of itself, and it's definitely going to leave me just a little bit of time to get some of my indie titles, get some indie titles under my belt. It's definitely going to be interesting to see how people's lists start to show up, and uh, there's definitely going to be a lot of garbage to wade through. Uh, so my next episode is going to be 2023 in review, like I said. Except, you know, i leave out the very important stuff, like uh, most wanted video game of next year as voted by 
people who take online surveys. And, uh, best trailer. Man, what a little garbage. I find it kind of funny that they had, like, best trailer out, knowing that Rockstar Games was releasing uh, the GTA 6 trailer on, like, whatever, December 5th. And I think it's already, like, one of the most popular of all time. But 2024, and I guess 2025 for Grand Theft Auto 6, uh, will definitely be interesting. Uh, so, once again, this was Game in Hand. Thanks for tuning in. Here's my shameless plug for the episode. I would appreciate if you would try and share the cast with a friend. Maybe if you find this engaging or at least a little bit entertaining. Leave a review if your podcast platform supports it. Honestly, it's the YouTube model. Any interaction is positive feedback. Uh, And we're creeping up to 620 downloads uh, according to my metrics. It's definitely interesting seeing how many up-to-date subscribers there are. So really, from the bottom of my heart, I can't thank you enough for sticking with it. But that's going to close it off. My name is Dan. You are listening to Game in Hand. Bye-bye for now.